listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. All righty, let's do this thing. Let's make this podcast. Let's create a moment together, you and me. Let's do it right now, right here. Now, I know what you're thinking. Bart is not usually this way. He usually starts in a warm and sensitive way, you know, like, hey, everybody, welcome back. Why all the yowling? Why all the bloviating? And the answer is it's fully intentional. I have decided to try to inject some joie de vivre into this introduction. I am feeling a renewed sense of energy and I want to share it with you because I do not feel there is enough joie de vivre in the world right now. And by the way, I did study up so that I could pronounce that correctly. Um, yeah, and I get it. I mean, my, my energy that I want to share with you is very fresh, very fresh. The last 10 days have been rough for me. I will always remember where I was and who I was with when I found out that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died. And that's a very hard moment for a lot of people, me included. And part of it was just, I don't know, the magnitude of the woman herself. I mean, she's just a magnificent person who, you know, accomplished so much for so many people against such long odds and in such a charming way. I mean, she's just a bright light. You know, I mean, I felt when she died the way I felt when Prince died. Like, ugh, I just loved being in the world, knowing that that person was also in the world sort of burning brightly. And, uh, and then, of course, you know, part of it is the politics and my fear that we're, you know, in some ways it felt like the last straw of my hope that we could avoid sinking into kind of an abyss of mean-spiritedness that would render the country ungovernable. You know, I found myself wondering, like, what if it's the end of an era. What if, what if the American experiment is over? The idea of like, what if, you know, the most powerful country on the planet was becoming a liberal democracy? You know, what, what if it was becoming a nation ruled by laws that were getting better and better such that eventually it would actually provide liberty and justice to all? Wouldn't that be something? I mean, I feel like that was the experiment, and I'm not sure that that experiment is still in play. You know, I, I, I found myself going like, what if our democratic institutions are broken beyond repair? You know, what, what if the checks and balances that we've relied on for the last 200 and some years actually depended as much on human decency and gentlemen's agreements and fair play as they did on the constitution itself. And that stuff is not, not there anymore. Well, you know, what if, what if our, our, our justice system and our military ultimately become tools by which one party permanently sidelines the other parties and you end up just being another one of those one one-party, one banana republic-type places. And, you know, that's, that's such a troubling thought for me. 
that I started looking into literature and I started looking to, 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 for inspiration. It's like, you know, I felt like I needed to actually answer that question. What would I do? What do you do if you lose on a, on a major scale? If you lose, if, if, the, if the dream dies, what do you do the day after the dream dies? And it's funny because I ended up, or what do you do the day after you figure out that the dream's just about to die? And, uh, I ended up finding this old poem that, I mean, everybody knows this poem. Everybody read it in high school. I haven't thought about it much in years. It's Dylan Thomas. And I know I usually save the artsy stuff for the end of the podcast where I, the quotes and the poems, but this one fits. Just like the conversation I'm about to share with you with John Engel. Oh my gosh, does this fit this moment? John is one of the truly wonderful people I know. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she's wonderful. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know her. I never met her. John Engel is one of those people that in my own life, makes me feel better about being a human being. And I'm sharing him with you partly because of who he is, but also partly because of what, what he's been through and what he's seen and what he knows because of what he's been through and seen. It's, it's, all, gonna be, it's all gonna come together. But, but yeah, I'm not gonna say the poem for the end. I'm gonna read you the poem now. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage. Rage against the dying of the light. The wise men at their end, no dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning. They do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late. They grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight. Blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you... My father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Now I'm not going to burn you with my amateur literary criticism. I actually, I, I'm, I'm going to put in the show notes an article that really helped me to, to think through this poem afresh and anew. But on some level, it's really clear. What do you do when you realize you're going to die? And Dylan Thomas's answer is, you embrace the last embers of life. And for as long as you have life, you cherish it and you live it. And, and maybe that involves reflecting on where you went wrong and the mistakes that you made and what you failed to understand. That's fine, but you don't do it passively. You rage. You rage. You live. And, and, and to me, that, that doesn't mean that you're angry at, at everyone. That you, I think in some sense for people like you and I, to rage against the dying of the light is to love. It's to live. 
is to care. It's to keep going. You go like, what are you going to do? At, what would I do on the day after I wake up in an authoritarian regime? And I go like, man, I will tend my garden. I will love my people. I mean, that 10-year that garden thing comes from Voltaire. And I'll post the coolest um, sort of reflection on Voltaire. Somebody sent me also this week. Um, and uh, it came from the School of Life. It's brilliant. But, but I will tend my garden. I will love my people. I will love the people around me. I mean, they can't, uh, you say, what if Trump, we, we'll lose our freedom. No one can stop you from living for justice. No one can stop you for living for love. No one can stop you from ca for caring for the people around you. You may not be able to affect the larger thing. Just like death, you will not defeat death, but you don't have to surrender to it. And you may not be able to defeat the forces that are at work in our democracy undermining our civil discourse, but you do not surrender to them. You continue to talk to people in the way that they should be talked to you, and you continue to listen to people in the way that they should be listened to. And if they, if they, if somehow all of a sudden, like there are women that can't get the help they need, you go underground and, 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 and in, back, in back rooms and you plot and you figure out ways to get women the, the help that they need. And you plot ways to, to, to help people that are, are economically disenfranchised to have opportunities to work again. You, 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 we, we find food for people that need food. Like in the end, if the government turns against us or if the government just falls, implodes upon itself, they, they, they can't stop us from being human. You know, it's funny, I was, I was, I was thinking about, in my, in my research this week, I, I came across a funny old video from the 1993 Super Bowl that I remember so well when it happened. And most of you are too young to, to, to remember this, or you just didn't care about football. But, it, but what, what happened was the Buffalo Bills, they went to the Super Bowl four times and lost in a row. Four years in a row, they went to the big game and lost. And in one of these games, they were being completely blown out by the Dallas Cowboys. And, uh, and towards the end of the game, it's like 55 to 10. They're just getting crushed. And, uh, and, and, and the, the, the Buffalo quarterback fades back to pass. And Dallas comes in and sacks him. And as they sack him, they knock the, they knock the ball loose. And, and the fumble goes out on the ground. And this big Dallas player, Leon Letts, who was strong and powerful and graceful and fast, picks up the ball, scoops it up, and he starts running for the touchdown. And he's just running down the field. You're like, oh, my gosh, injury to insult, or insult to injury. I mean, he's going to score yet again. And, and as, he, as he gets down to the end, he's celebrating and he's holding the ball in one hand and he's starting to just, just celebrate as he gets to the end and he slows down a little bit. And this Buffalo Bills player, it turns out his name was Don Beebe, a wide receiver who'd been knocked down on the play, had gotten up and he saw what was happening and he ran at top speed as fast as he could down the field and he catches Leon Lett on the goal line and slaps the ball out of his hand. And he goes out of the end zone for a touchback. And so instead of being another touchdown for the Cowboys, the Bills get the ball back on their 20-yard line. And it doesn't change a thing. It doesn't matter. The Bills still get smoked. The Cowboys still crush them. It doesn't matter at all. And yet, anyone that was watching it remembers that play because it was, ah, it was a triumph of the human spirit. 
Because BB wasn't thinking, oh, I can save the game. We can still win. He was just thinking, the game is still on. I'm still a football player. There's a touchdown I can prevent. And he just did it for the love of the game. He just did it for the sake of not quitting. He just did it. And they couldn't stop him from trying. He couldn't win, but he didn't surrender. And I think that's, that's you and me. That's what we want to be. We want to be people that, that rage, that don't surrender. Now listen, you know, maybe, I, maybe I feel like a catastrophist because the world is really coming to an end and global warming is real and the fires in California and all the stuff in Australia and everything's going bad. And maybe, maybe stuff was always this bad and I just didn't know about it because of the damn internet and my phone and COVID that keeps me home and I've learned to watch a lot of videos and I listen to a lot of podcasts and maybe the problem is me. I don't know. I don't know, but I do know this. It doesn't do me much good to keep listening to it, to keep hearing about it, to keep reflecting on how bad things are. I'd be better off instead of raging about how, oh, the internet is wrecking everything in the world. It's just like, maybe I should put down my phone and get about loving the people near me. Maybe I should tend my own garden. So that's, that's, and, and you know, what's funny is like that gave me energy because like even in the midst of catastrophe, I can stay calm and happy if I know I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And I mean, I'm going to vote. I don't know if my vote will get counted. I don't know if the, I don't know if the votes will determine who's the president. I don't know about any of that stuff. I'm going to do it symbolically because it's the right thing to do, but I'm not, I'm not counting on that vote to be my contribution to the human spirit. And I don't think you should either. So be Don Beebe. Even if they're going to beat us, even if they do beat us, they can't stop us. You know, it's the Invictus poem. There's another one I read, you know. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Actually, I think I reversed it. I think it's, I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul. Now, damn it. I don't know my poetry nearly as well as I know what's in my heart right now. Which is that in the face of catastrophe, we may be aware locally, but we need to act locally. We need to think locally. We need to talk locally too. And stop talking so much about what's going on in the world and start talking more about what's going on with the people around us and how we can positively impact their lives and where we can create more justice in our little space. How we can make our local police force better. How we can make our local school system better. And, and don't get me wrong, I understand that these larger powers, the Supreme Court has a massive impact over how public education goes. The problem is I have no ability to impact that right now, but I do have the ability to impact what's going on right here in Cincinnati. And that's, that's what I'm committed to doing. I have energy for it. I have energy for it that I didn't have before. And yeah, and you say, you sound like a guy who's been listening to like Broadway anthems and, and, and inspirational music. Um, and, you know, Les Miserables, do we hear the people sing? And, you know, and, and, and Jagged Little Pill, like we live, we learn, we lose, we learn. And yes, I've been listening to all that stuff. I have been actively 
taking in courageous stuff and inspirational stuff because I don't just want to mourn Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I want to do my part. And, you know, that's why I want to share this conversation with John Engel. I actually had the conversation with him over a month ago and was sort of sitting on it, waiting, like, when am I going to use it? When am I going to use it? And at this moment, I want to introduce you to a truly good person who figured out that in, in, in a situation where he was overwhelmed by the magnitude, the scale of the destruction around him, he's just like, yeah, you know, I can't worry about all that. I got to just love the people that are right here with me. I got to do what I can. And so John Engel, he's a, he runs an organization called Haiti Partners that does a lot of really wonderful educational reform. But as, 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 you, as you're going to hear us talking, I think you're going to sense that he's also a person who uh, who keeps his focus narrow enough that he cannot lose hope even in hopeless situations. Because in, in interpersonal relationships, there's always something you can do. There's always something you can do. And so, yeah, with no further ado, I'm not, I'm not coming back on the other side of this podcast. This is it. When the conversation is over, all I'm going to do, and, and I'm recording it right now, and John will put it right at the end, and you're guaranteed it'll be the same words because you're going to put the same little bit. Here's what I'm going to say at the end. I'm going to say thank you so much for sticking with us in this conversation. Thank you so much for being part of this community. I, I genuinely love the people who engage with this podcast and that allow the people that I'm talking to and that are changing my life to change their lives too. I think we're doing something that's valuable and I'm, I'm just, I'm proud to be a part of it. And so, uh, I'll see you next time on humanize me. That's what's going to be at the end of the podcast in between there. And now is a very wonderful conversation with a person I think is very wonderful. John Engel. When, when you say, when you describe, I mean, I've been knowing you all those 29 years you were living in Haiti and, yeah. um, and now you're in Florida, but like when you describe the work that you and Marlene are doing, do you, do you, is it, do you, do you feel like you're like educational organ, educational reformers? Do you feel like you're community organizers? Like, what do you, what do you, what's the broader rubric under which you, you describe the work? Okay. So the, we use a, a fair amount at the high level you know, speaking, if you're just trying to get under 10 words, is that our, the mission of Haiti Partners is helping Haitians change Haiti through education. So we use that a fair amount. And then if we have, you know, if you have a, to get a little bit more specific, we're with our community, we're creating a school-based community development model. A school-based community development model. Right. That... That, that in a sense says in any community, maybe a, a good place to start mobilizing and organizing the community around all of its issues is, is, is with the school because that's kind of at the center of everybody's life anyway. That's the idea. It's, you know, that society is coordinated around schools. And so, so we put emphasis on working with the parents you can, like the school that we created with our community, you can only get into that school at age three. So you're, you're growing up in that school, and the parents have to give four service hours a week 
So they work in the gardens and in the gardens there is, is uh, like composting latrines. We do permaculture. The idea would be that they're, they're learning things that are good for them. You know, the last time I was in Haiti with David, he took me around and, and I, actually, I actually sat on the edge of one of those circles uh-huh. where they were working through. And I don't know if they still use this anymore. They were using a kind of almost like a, an, a, a, a graphic novel or a comic book yep. um, that took people through scenarios and then they got into discussions about what they were seeing and how they felt about it. Exactly. Exactly. And, it, and so it's, you know, it comes out of the stuff that like Beyond Borders and Haiti Partners, the reflection circles and open space. So we've, we've been having monthly community meetings. These things, the idea that you're coming together to discuss things, to process things, yeah. and that kids are a part of it. And in a sense, kids are growing up observing all of this. Yeah, it's funny. I, I was thinking, I, I watched this cool video. Um, it's a very famous talk by some British educator where he describes how our schools in, in the Western world were designed around or, you know, sort of orienting people to working in factories. And so they would take little kids and they would be like, okay, we've got to break their spirits. We've got to get them to follow the clock. We've, you know, we've got to teach them, how, you know, how to f- f- concentrate on certain kinds of tasks. And it's so interesting because I think in some ways when, when I look at, when, when you describe or, or Haitian schools, it, it's orienting people to live in a really patriarchal, really, you know, heavy handed. Exactly. Whoever is in charge is the only boss and nobody else should question that leadership way of being. Lots of rote learning and all of that stuff. Yeah. And you want to get to that position, you know, in, in somehow in your circles. Um, Right. It's like whether you're in charge of school, maybe you're not in charge of school, but in terms of your household or in terms of your little group of friends or in terms of, you know, it's, yeah. Even just your romantic relationship. Like there's this one person and I will dominate them. That's right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Sir Ken Thomas. He's fabulous. That's it. That's, that's yeah. But, but the reason, you know, so I could have called you at any time and said, let's talk about Haiti. Right. Um, But in a weird way, I'm calling you now, not so much for Haiti to be the thing that we're looking at, but more the lens through which we're looking at the world and in particular this strange moment that we're all in with 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 the covid-19 pandemic and the the sort of the political conversation that's going on and i saw something you wrote and it made me think that you're seeing things a little bit differently because you spent 29 years in Haiti and because you're married to a Haitian woman and because you've, you've been steeped in all this grassroots community change and, and education stuff. And, and I guess I just wanted to sort of check in with you and say, it, do, do you feel yourself having a different take on this thing because of who you are and where you've been and what you've been doing? You know, I, the thing that I'm, I feel that I'm sensitive to is the idea that uh, the, the whole notion of trauma and 
in recent years, you know, we've, it seems that we've learned so much more about the role that trauma plays in human behavior and that it's not just like it's much greater than what we had anticipated and not even just trauma, um, you know, like physical trauma that happened to you, but like trauma that's generational, that it actually gets in the DNA, um, that, you know, this, the one, one woman, in fact, I was just in a conversation with her. She's is Armenian and she does training around the world. She's a, a PhD, um, with the UN in people with trauma. And she's done a lot of training, uh, with our, with the teachers, with our school. We've had a lot of training with our, our teachers and parents on, on trauma. Um, and she, one of her, she's got lots of different sayings, but one is trauma that's not transformed is transferred. So, you know, you, you can just count on it that, uh, it's, you know, people who grow up and have trauma of some form or another, they're going to pass it on to others. And typically that's children. And, you know, it's just a, it's a powerful, powerful limitation of people and their creativity and their ability to use, use their minds and, you know, affects rational thinking. And so there's just a lot of trauma out there. The, the other thing that I feel sensitive to. Wait, wait, to, wait. When oh, did you first become aware of there's a lot of trauma out there? Like was, were you always aware of it or did, was it, is it, was it sort of a dawning awareness as you worked with kids in Haiti? It was from early on of moving to Haiti and learning about the history. Um, I was exposed to the idea that, uh, you know, there's just, there's a lot of trauma from the corporal punishment, from the way that ch uh, children are raised by their parents, you know, sparing the whip is a way to spoil the child, you know, using, um, biblical, uh, words and things like that. But in terms of really, it's probably been more in the, in the past dozen years that we've been exposed to so much more things after the earthquakes So the earthquake was 10 years ago. And that was determined to be a, a really, you know, obviously a lot creates a lot of trauma. Um, and, and then we have we, different partners that we have that the earthquake brought to Haiti, um, like Life is Good, you know, the, the brand Life is Good. They have a, a kids foundation uh, and led by a guy named Steve Gross, who has spent his life working on trauma and on educating and training people who work with children in how to do it so as to help them get through their trauma. So just being exposed to all these different things, and in a sense, it, so many things clicked about behavior of people um, based on the fact that chances are that they've, they've experienced trauma. Do, do, do you think that the earthquake, which is this obvious trauma that affected, I can't imagine it didn't affect everybody in Haiti. Mm -hmm. um, on some level, but do you think that like the, I'm sorry, I said, like, I gotta stop saying like, <laughs> do, do you think that the trauma of the earthquake and the tools where 
people like that came in from the outside and used those tools to start thinking about tra earthquake trauma. Did those same tools then unearth other kinds of trauma farther back? That's what, like I'm that's thinking of the, think. the slave history of Haiti and the history of conflict. There's just, it's just got a lot of pain there. Right. That's that's what I think. Yes. Because the, the thing I'm thinking is is that in the United States right now, there does seem to be maybe for the first time, broadly speaking, there seems to be a reckoning with the very present trauma mm -hmm. of police brutality. But I feel like that's uncovering, oh, there's these other traumas too. Right. Like once you start using that trauma lens, yeah. you realize that people have a lot of stuff going on. Exactly. That's, that's what I would agree. And I, I would agree that um, whether we call it trauma or um, whether it touches on people's trauma, let's face it, uncertainty acts on, on our behavior. It acts in our, on our psyche. And, and right now, it just seems that people with COVID, with the racial tension, with uh, the economic impact, that people are just dealing with a lot of uncertainty. And you have, you have, I think it's part of the explanation for behavior that's, you know, everything from the masks to the conspiracy for masks, uh, or again, rather against masks, to so many different conspiracy theories, to, you know, anger, uh, the political, um, divisiveness. And I think the uncertainty is really playing on our psyches. It's interesting because I, I was just reading about um, a guy named Martin Segelman, who I think is a great psychologist, kind of the founder of positive psychology. And mm -hmm. um, But one of his early studies was in, in this concept of learned helplessness. Mm -hmm. And what they found was, is that if, if you put you know, rats in, a, in an environment where they would be shocked through their feet um, randomly, they would freak out. But then if, if you put a lever in there and they could stop the shocks by pulling the lever, they would quickly learn to like, okay, I don't want to get shocked. I'm going to pull this lever. But that if you put them in an environment where when they started pulling the lever, sometimes it stopped the shock and sometimes it didn't. And they, they, they realized like, I have no control over what's happening to me. Hmm. they would learn to just kind of hang there helplessly mm -hmm. um, because they learned that they didn't have a lot, you know, that, that, that uncertainty ultimately made them feel helpless. Uh -huh. and, right. and, 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 and I sort of feel that way myself right now uh -huh. where I, I'm finding myself having a hard time planning for the future or, or being excited about things to come just because I don't know what's going to happen. And so uncertainty, right. yeah, I, I don't know if it is trauma, but it certainly seems to unhinge us, mm -hmm. or, or, you right. know, sort of undo us in a really weird way. Yeah. I feel like I'm learning about that. And I feel like we have reflected a lot uh, with our current uncertainty, thinking back of the time of the uncertainty after the earthquake and you know with the children at that time of 
two and four and trying to make the decision, do we leave and evacuate when we don't yet know, you know, if our family members are all right, you know, Marilyn's father and um, brothers and sisters, because telephones weren't working. And, but we have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And we don't know if society's going to break down and there's going to be uh, crime and, you know, violence and or if, if there's going to be disease and epidemics. And we just didn't know. But we and eventually we made the, the decision that, uh, okay, so Mar- we'd send Marilene and the kids on a, you know, one of the big military planes to evacuate Haiti. But I would stay. And we were on, on the way down to the American embassy. And Marilene says, we're not, we're staying. I'm, I'm staying with you and we're staying with the kids. And so we did stay and it was a tough time. And our kids got bronchitis and they got pneumonia because we were sleeping outside, um, you know, for a number of nights and it was cold and damp in the mountains. And um, it, it was a tough where, where time. Where were you? Where, where exactly were you? We were, we were at our house and that's, okay. we were in, a, in the house. We were actually getting ready to leave. We were scheduled to leave the following day. And so we were in our house and it shook like crazy. You know, I didn't know a concrete house, you know, with a concrete roof and everything could shake like that and not come down, but it didn't. Uh, we, we had some uh, cracks, but had engineers check them out and they said, yeah, it's all, um, you know, it's, it's still structurally sound. And um, so, you know, in the, in the, the days and the weeks, and the months that continued, um, the emphasis that that we put on, you know, trying to have practices, you know, daily daily rituals, trying to do a lot of processing together um, and dialogue. And the Wozo choir members, the kids in the would come over and they would create music and create songs together, write songs with Marilene and Alex. And so, you know, of going on, of, of processing things, thinking about things and going on. And I think just trying to be patient with ourselves and patient with one another. Um, to me, that's what I'm striving to, to do now. With, it's so, with all it's so of interesting this. to hear. It's so interesting to hear you talk about that because it's like, the earth shook under your feet and everything came down and you're like, okay, the way we're going to process this is we're going to bring the kids together to make music. We're going to, we're going to come together to to dialogue and to process our ideas. We're going to come together to do this. And I'm thinking, yeah, what do we do now? Like the, Mm -hmm. the, 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 the crisis now is the earth is not shaking, but we're not supposed to be together. Yeah. Right. Well, I think, we're not together, but we are communicating a lot, you know, given the fact that we have a telephone, or, you know, we have cell phones, we have Zoom, we have, so it's not the same. Obviously, it's not the same, but, you know, God knows, man, <laughs> it's, we can be more patient with one another, more civil in our communications on <laughs> social media and Zoom. And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. And again, I, I attribute a lot of this to uncertainty that we're dealing with and that arouses with us impatience and fear, and meanness. <laughs> so when you were there, there was uncertainty there too, right? Right. Like the economy was wrecked. I mean, the economy there was wrecked before the earthquake, but like it was really wrecked after the earthquake. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the, and, and the infrastructure and everything. Right. Do you think, I mean, in a weird way, do you think the Haitian people were more prepared because they had had uncertainty for so long? Absolutely. I, I remember after, in fact, I was just sharing this experience um, recently with someone. You, you know, the Israelis had set up uh, a, a temporary hospital within, I don't know, like within a week in Port-au-Prince that was just seeing thousands of people. You know, the, the Israelis obviously just have such uh, capacity in terms of dealing with disaster and dealing with hardship. And I had some friends um, longtime friends in Israel who got in touch with me and put me in touch with some of the, uh, the people who, you know, both physicians and also people who had uh, experience in helping people deal with uh, disaster. And, and we would, we took these guys to some of our communities and, you know, where their the structures are, are gone. These people are living underneath tarps and tents and, um, and, and trying to reorganize their life and deal with people who are injured and everything. But we would, you know, sit around on the ground in big circles and, and process. And these guys would take them through, you know, how do you deal with this? You know, yesterday or that the earthquake, uh, when the earthquake happened, my four-year-old who was right beside me was sitting there. And the next thing you know, a cinder block falls on her head. And, you know, people that are just dealing with this stuff and, and them asking questions and them inviting people to be breathing and, and thinking about, you know, where during the day, where do they find the sense of peace or where do they find some sense? And just they were really, really helpful in terms of helping the people think through different things. But I remember them saying, like, on the drive to and from these places and talking with them, they said, you know, the reality is that because Haitians are, are used to dealing with so much um, uncertainty and so much difficulty, that they're so much more prepared to deal with this than what, what Americans would be, for instance, or, you know, people who are, uh, have, have a more controlled and expected uh, way of life. So you're exactly right, Bart. Yeah, it's, and it's so weird because in some sense you wouldn't want – It's you know, if there's anything I've learned about childhood trauma, it's that, you know, all those fight or flight reflexes, all the things that happen when you are in the midst of a really difficult circumstance, they're really good for getting you out of that circumstance or getting you through it. But, but they're not good to have long term. Like you don't want to, you don't want to have a continuous level of suffering so that you get used to suffering. Yeah. Because it's not, it's not healthy. Right. And so, unless, unless there's going to be more suffering, in which case, <laughs> it's, you know, it, it provides you with a little bit of armor. And so, mm -hmm. it's, it's very strange because I, I wonder if right now I've been thinking, I don't know if, this, I don't know if this is temporary. And mm -hmm. so in some sense, I don't know if the armor that people are building up to deal with uncertainty, which if things are going to become 
more predictable in the future. You go like, hey, you don't want to get too used to uncertainty. That, that'll that give you some bad habits. <laughs> but if things are going to stay uncertain in the future, you go like, you know what? That'll provide you with some resilience. Right. And it's just very difficult. <clears throat> Another, I guess that's a meta layer of uncertainty is <laughs> I'm uncertain if I need to get used to uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, well said. And I think consciously or unconsciously, I think that's what we're dealing with, you know, with, yeah. uh, with writings of you know, everything from the experts that study civilizations and the, the signs and the indicators that, um, you know, Western civilization as we know it is in decline and, um, you know, these different things that democracy is in decline and, um, around the world. And, you know, it, it, it really is, uh, it's sobering. Yeah. You don't know whether you should buckle up for a long ride mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or whether you should think of this as a crisis that needs to be, that, you know, that needs to be gotten through. And you just keep, yeah. keep saying to each other, Hey, when we get back to normal, like, Hey, things are going to be okay. Hey, think, and, and you, you think, I don't know if in Haiti, after the earthquake, if people, you know, I, I, I don't know how many people are like, hey, well, things will be okay. Yeah. Or if people right. are like, look, this, you know, things are never okay. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, and, I, I, and they sure I, haven't been <laughs> in Haiti. No. So, I, God. Oh, really? That's 10 years ago. I thought, they, I thought they cleaned all that up and everything was fine now. I know. Oh, my goodness. It's such a, such a struggle. It, 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 10 years on, it's still worse than it was the day before the earthquake, isn't it? Yeah. 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 In terms of uh, political instability and, and, uh, crime and the numbers of guns and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's bad. It's bad. And so now you're back in the United States, you and Marlene and the, and the kids, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I know you still go there a lot, but but you're based in Florida now. Yes, <laughs> you you really you really can pick the spots, can't you? That's right. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> you know, couldn't be in. Uh, I don't know where's safe in this country right now, but I know there's safer places in Florida. Yeah, right. We are in a county though that's that's very low, so we're not. In t- we're in a hot state, obviously, but in terms of places, we're not, you know, in Miami, Southern Florida, we're yeah. Vero Beach, in a, uh, that it's not nearly as bad. So, so I mean, I know this sounds dumb, but because, like, I look at my experience of kind of very publicly losing my faith and leaving leaving the, the evangelical community and then trying to figure out how to, how to, how to be a, how to pursue a good life and good and, and, and to serve people and to be a minister on the other side of faith on the one hand, and also how to like reach back and, and, and create some kind of meaningful relationships with the people I left behind. Mm-hmm. And so when, when we come into this moment and one aspect of the problem is, is that nobody knows how to talk to anybody who doesn't agree with them. Uh-huh, right. That's when I raise my hand and say, oh, 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 something I know, I know about that. Yeah. Like, I can talk about that. 
Like right. that, that's something from my experience, lived experience that I, I feel like I bring to this moment. And I guess what I'm wondering is, is after all these years of working with Haitian, I, I don't know, what, what do you call peasants? Like Haitian, Haitian, Haitians at the lowest ebb of that, of that, ex, of that economic situation, mm -hmm. you know, villagers right? Um, with, with very little, um, what do you feel like you bring? Like, like, what, like, what can you raise your hand and say, look, look, I can't, I can't solve the epidemiological issues. I'm not, I'm not going to be real good about, you know, economics, but like this, I know, what, what do you feel like, you know? Um, so I feel like I've learned things that are helpful right now. And one of them is the importance of humility. Um, to, to just acknowledge that like what we don't know is so much bigger than what we do know. And it, it, to me, striving to have humility is um, in these situations, I find it liberating. It kind of liberates my, my spirit. Um, so I think that's, I think that's one really important thing i think understanding just trying to understand you know, like in beyond borders good old david diggs used to always say and this goes back like nearly 30 years ago understanding is our most important resource the more we try to understand a situation and understand people and empathize with people the the more helpful it's going to be and so uh, my experience in haiti included you know learning the language living with people literally in their household with people that don't speak uh english for months as you work on the language and then living in a community where i'm the only foreigner and uh you know with with haitians all day long learning the language learning culture you know to me did, did, did you learn it through that lamp method i, I did yeah yeah, could you like? I, because I, I, I went on a long walk in Haiti. Like we were walking up into some village with a woman who explained to me that how she learned Haitian through the lamp method, and and it it blew my mind. Yeah, like, can you describe that for me? Yeah, sure. It's it, it, what lamp language ac acquisition made practical. So the idea, which I I also learned French, which I'm. Yeah, that was 20 years ago that I spent a year in France, but I used this, you know, basically the same method in, in France. And um, at the end of the year, I was pretty fluent. Um, so language acquisition made pra practical puts the emphasis on, instead of putting so much focus on academic learning and, you know, learning the grammar, you learn by talking with people and you getting comfortable in talking with people and being comfortable, trying to get comfortable with knowing that you're going to be uncomfortable and you're going to be making mistakes. But it's like a child that learns and speaks and just says things and tries things. So, you know, you, you have to learn your some tools like you learn in the language. How do you say this? You know, so you get good at learning how to say that or you get good at, at being able to, to explain to people early on, you know, this is what my name is. 
this is why I'm here. I'm trying to learn the language. Will you be willing to correct me when I make mistakes? So in a sense, you're setting it up to be uh, a language learner and for everybody around you to uh, to be your teachers. And, and and this woman, they, they, they did that, but they dropped her off in a village where she was the only English speaker in that village. Yeah, that's what, that's what with we these did. Few to- <laughs> with these few tools, right? Yeah. With these yeah. few tools. And then she said like every day they would give her like one word and she would run around and use that one phrase on everybody. She'd be right. like, this is a dog. This is a dog. <laughs> and people would like nod and stuff. But the the other aspect of it, that she told me about, and I don't know if this was true, was because it was Haiti and because she was a guest, nobody would let her do any work. Uh-huh, right. Did that happen to you too? I I was, you know, maybe it's because I was a male, um, but I, in my family, I did. I made it clear that I wanted to do work and they did let me do work. They let me, uh, like I would, And you you don't have mops, but I actually, one of my jobs was to get on my hands and knees and clean the floors, you know, with, uh, with water and a, and a rag. And so I did succeed in doing it, but I know that depending, the other thing that people do is, and a number of the people that we had that they're one of their biggest struggles was the pressure every single day to eat <laughs> because the parents, you know, or the, the, in a sense, the adults in the house just thought, realized that this is a big deal that, that their parents and their families of these, um, you know, Americans know that they're in a poor country and, you know, for them to come to this poor country and lose weight and get, cause you know, in Haiti, you, you recall how this is like people really like to gain weight. That's a sign of, it's a sign of prosperity. It's a sign of comfort. It's a, um, so people like to gain weight. And if you see somebody that's been losing weight, you feel like, Oh my goodness. Yeah. They're, they're sick. They're unhealthy. So people would put so much emphasis on eat, eat, eat. I don't want to send you home and you've lost weight. So, so, you know, of course for me, I like to eat. So I like, I eat pretty much anything. So for me, it all worked out well. (laughs) But what's interesting is in all of that, whether it's eating or will you help me learn this language or whatever, there was a sense in which the humility is built into the process because exactly, exactly. they, They leave you there. And, and, and I remember this, this lovely young woman saying to me, that when they finally allowed her to help with the cooking um, and they said, you know, we didn't know you well enough to let you serve us. Like, like in a sense, we didn't trust you or we didn't, we didn't, we needed to know you better. Uh And which, but, but what it seems to me is, is that she did gain a lot of understanding and you did obviously even as, as in the same way, but it, it did start out with like, it's hard to gain understanding if you don't show up admitting that you don't understand. Uh-huh. Right. And so in a sense, you know, what I'm watching right now is a lot of people having arguments and it seems clear to me that they don't understand the perspective of the people on the other side. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. but they but they think that they do. Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. they they sort of like they don't have enough humility to say I have you know, just in the in the rawest terms. Somebody says I'm really excited about Donald Trump, and sometimes like they don't have the humility to say I don't understand why you're excited about Donald Trump and mm-hmm. his policies. Mm-hmm. Instead, they say I do know why you're why you're. Uh, why you're supportive of Donald Trump and it's because you're this kind of person or it's because you don't care about this or you 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 want power over that and there's a sense in which in order to gain understanding you would have to admit that you didn't have it right right and I, I don't I don't see any I see very few people where people are saying like gosh the people on the other side of the aisle are doing something that I would never do and I I need I need to figure out why mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I mean it's man. The it to me, it's just such a crisis of uh, right now in terms of a crisis our, of humility. A crisis of humility. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, the, the other concept. Well, a couple things that. As we as we strive to understand what um, other things that are impacting, I think people's psyche and their behavior. I think the other the, the other thing that is pretty important is uh, you know what I've heard people refer to as the Browning of America, and the fact that uh, you know it's just like several decades away where whites will no longer be the majority. And I think that, you know, in terms of this experiment of America um, and being a, a one of its kind, as I understand it, in terms of a country of this size and uh, this much diversity, we're, you know, humans are just, we're, we're animals <laughs> and we're not as, we're, we're not nearly as smart as we think we are. And I think that there's uh there's fear again. I, I suspect for a lot of people, it's unconscious. Um, but the fact that we're no that among whites that we're n- no longer going to be the majority, which of course was, you know, your experience in the extreme for 29 years. Yeah, the the difference, and people will say that. Um, I mean, the reality is that we we would have people, you know, over the years we've had received thousands of people, and sometimes we would have people that would say things like, um, "Oh, now I know how how you know the two black people felt in my school when I grew up, <laughs> and you know, because I'm the only white people here, and you right. know, there's all these black people, and it's like, well, not really." <laughs> You're kind of not taking into consideration any of the history of how we got here and where we are. You know, the fact that like we as white people, I might be the only white person, but if I want to go to a clinic, if I want to go to uh, a government office, if I, chances are, now some of these things are changing and it's, it's good they are, but you know, and with the anti-American sentiment and Haiti and elsewhere, but um, for many of the years that I was in Haiti, there there really was hardly any of that, and so you're just treated like royalty, 
you know, you get. Yeah, to, I was going to say, I was going to say yeah. that's exactly my experience when I was there. I was like, I'm the only white guy in the room and I'm sitting in the best chair. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> They're bringing me more food. More food. Yeah, that's right. And the best food. I yeah. remember, you know, I would, I would eat. You know, and I would go like, wow, these villagers, look at this. There's meat all the time. And, yeah, right. and, you know, and, right. and, and you or David would say to me, hey, Bart, this is yeah. the only meat that's going to be served here for a month. Like, that's right. <laughs> they're showing off for you. Right. I know. And, 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 and I thought like of all the people that shouldn't be receiving the best food in, in, in the village. Right. Here I was. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, it's not the same. Yeah. Um. So, so for you, it's funny, like, I think what I bring is, I, I, I know how, I know what sort of the, I know what works and what doesn't work in converse, in, in, in hard conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm hoping I can share more and more of that. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like what you know is, is, is a, is a even, an even more fundamental found part of that kind of conversation. And that is the attitude that you need to bring into it. Uh, I mean, I, in order for it to work. And I, it's like, I, I know that. Do I always do it? I think I don't enough. So I don't want to, well, I don't want to act like, like, yeah, this is something I've really mastered. and I'm really good at it and everything. I feel like I'm conscious of this and <laughs> which, which also means that I'm also conscious the times when I don't do it. Well, you know, it's, I mean, I, I, you know, whenever I would go to scientific symposiums when I was at USC, you know, the, the Nobel Prize winning scientist would stand up, you know, to talk about his paper and he would say, now I'm sure there are people in the room that know more about this than I do. And I'm thinking like, there's no way any of us know more about this than you do. But like, (laughs) so so I'm, I always take it with a grain of salt when somebody says like, look, I, I, like, I'm very aware of this thing and, and, and because they're aware of it, they're aware of their limitations but yeah. the fact that they're aware of it still tells me they know more about it than I do. Um, mm. And I, I, I guess what I'm curious about, maybe most curious about, like I, I, this conversation sort of narrowing me down is, if we have a crisis of humility, mm-hmm. I don't want to know what you know about humility. I want to know what you know about teaching, transferring, creating the context in which humility emerges. Like, what do you know about helping people become more humble in their approach to other people? Like, did the Haitians teach you something about it? Have you taught, have you taught, like, what have you learned about communicating humility? Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, in fact, this is a this this question gets at when I said to you about our need to go granular with Marilyn and me. So first off, you know, one of the things that's been really influential is uh, being married to Marilyn and the fact of. Um, you know, I'm married to a strong black woman who, and we've been together for 18 years. And I still remember back of, you know, seeking counsel from you about pursuing this, uh, 
relationship. I gave you part. good advice. You didn't did. I? <laughs> you I gave did. you good advice that day. You <laughs> <laughs> did indeed, without even knowing her, but listening to me and explain the situation and everything. And so, you know, you're together with somebody for 18 years and you, uh, you know, at that point, like, they're not going to, you know, if, if the, the person is articulate and, and <clears throat> bright and committed to you and like Marilyn doesn't pull any punches and, you know, letting me know when I'm missing something and uh, just become very more aware than sometimes you want to be about your blind spots and about, you know, as a, as a white male. And, and an aging white male at that, you know. So, so in terms but of uh, that, that, that's 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 lesson one, I guess, is mm-hmm. that if you want to learn to be humble, you have to attach yourself to somebody who is both strong enough and willing enough to correct you. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. That's a, yeah. You know, because I think when I think about it, I think a lot of people, we spend a lot of our time trying to surround ourselves with people who will not disagree with us. Right. Who, 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 you know, we, we would prefer to be with somebody who would not disagree with us. And the only time we want to, we encounter somebody who disagrees with us, we're in attack mode. Uh Uh-huh. Right. Or defense mode. Defense, yep. Defense and attack. But but when you but but it's it seems like if you wanted to develop humility, you would be on the lookout for somebody who would lovingly challenge you. Right. And whose challenges you you knew that you would be able to withstand. Mm-hmm. Like right. they would be strong enough to change you, but but gentle enough that they wouldn't crush you, mm-hmm. which might yeah. be a good definition of Marilyn. Yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's really well said. And to, to, like you said, lovingly, because, you know, let's face it. If you're, if you're going to be in a situation where you're, you feel like you're being attacked and attacked that in a ways that's not loving, loving, and then, you know, you're, you don't want to subject yourself to that. Day in and day out. It's so funny, John. I was with I was with a friend, a couple of friends yesterday, in, in one of our socially distanced backyard conversations, and um, she's this wonderful woman, and she she comes from this family of people that are politically and religiously and in every other way polar opposites of where she is now. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and she was asking me like, you know, I don't even know how like I don't know how to talk to these people. Right. Like, and as we were talking, you know, about it, every bit of input I gave, she would say, well, that wouldn't work for this reason. That wouldn't work for that reason. And I think she was right. Like, and all of a sudden it dawned on me, oh, you, those family members, like in skiing terms, they're the black diamond slope. Like you would need the most skill. Mm-hmm. And the most understanding and, and the most kind of nuance to be able to talk with them. And I was like, but that's where you're starting. Like they're the only 
people on the other side of the issue that you're talking to, and they're the hardest people to talk to. Mm-hmm. And I ended up saying to her, you have to go find a bunny slope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to go find somebody who's on the other side of the issue, but who's gentle uh-huh. and who's open to you. And, and maybe they're not so far on the other side of the issue. Yeah. And, and you need to practice talking with somebody who won't attack you, you know, and, and, and who will listen to you and, and, and who, you, who, you're, who won't trigger you so that you will attack or so that you'll be mm-hmm. defensive. And mm-hmm. I said, you have, to, you have to pick the people you start with because even if it's possible to talk to somebody who's different than you, it's not possible to talk to everybody who's different with you right out of the gate. Yeah. And so that this is, and, and it feels to me like in some ways, I'm sure there are people who, I'm sure there are, are, are strong black women who in your early, who you could talk to now, but that you couldn't have talked to when you first got married to Marilyn. That you've, you've like, she was this, she was this, somebody who was in a position where she was gentle enough and, and you were attracted to her enough and there was so much good chemistry there and you, and you learned some things. And now you, can, you could probably handle dialogues that you couldn't have handled before. Uh-huh. Right. Absolutely. Exactly. And so, so maybe, yeah. maybe step one is you, 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 it, uh, if, if you want to learn humility, you don't want to learn it on the most difficult person. You know, you don't want to take yeah. on, right. You know, I don't want to sit down with Donald Trump and think like, that's where I'm going to like, I'm going to practice getting good at talking to somebody who thinks differently. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a- I, I too, I wonder sometimes if, uh, you know, part of your, your judgment or your decision, if you're coming, you know, for, if, if we have this uh, sense of humility, if it might even be, you know, it's probably not wise for me to get into it with this, with this person, you know, maybe we should just talk about the weather, you know, (laughs) because, you know, man, it's, we, we really have to choose our battles, don't we? It's, uh, and choose who, you know, what we're going to, how we're going to invest our time and energy. Well, and, and, and we, yeah, and, 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 and choose our battles, but also choose our objectives. Right, like, exactly. Why am I in this conversation? Exactly, right. Am I in it to gain understanding? Mm-hmm. Am I in it to change the other person's mind? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes I think if we looked carefully at what our goals were, and then we looked at the person and then look back at our goals, we'd go like, oh, I'm kidding. My, this is silly. Yeah, right. I'm not going to, that goal is, that goal is not going to happen in this conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and we might pick a different goal. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of times in the, in the interfaith conversation, I'll say to people, y- you know, if your goal is to get that person to see that you're right and they're wrong, I don't think you're going to get there. But I said, what if you said as your goal that they would walk away saying, wow, that's a secular person that I, that I like, or that I feel like is a good person, or that's a, there's a Christian, I, I, you know, who I admire. I said, I, I, 
you know, or there's a Christian that listens, or there's a, mm-hmm. there's a humanist that listens. I said, like, if you set that as a goal, you might be able to like gear the conversation and you could achieve that goal. But if you mm-hmm. set this other goal, it's just going to blow up in your face because that was never going to happen. You're right. Right. Which comes back to David's line, you know, the most, the, the greatest resource that we have is understanding. Understanding, right. And I don't think many of the conversations I'm seeing happen right now at the top of the person's list of goals for the conversation is I want to understand better how this person, how this other person thinks mm-hmm. or, or why they want what they want mm-hmm. right, or what they're afraid of. Right. So that's one thing. Is, is there anything else that you would say like, I mean, I know, I, I feel like you are a natural communicator of humility, but I don't know if you, if you've, are, if I don't know that you've, you probably haven't written that pamphlet, like five ways to communicate humility yeah. and why I'm the expert in knowing yeah. how to do it. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a good point. It, oh yeah. This, this was the other thing that I was going to say, um, that this gets at our decision, Marilene and mine and other colleagues who were involved, when I talked about deciding years ago to go granular and oh, to, yeah, really, yeah. to really focus on a, the, our community and a school model, because I believe that this is what the educational system needs, not just in Haiti, in general going into the future. You know, I, I just, I could be totally wrong, but, um, I would, I would agree with all the different people. Then there's a grow, it seems to be a growing number of them that would say, yeah, like, like, uh, Kent, um, Robinson, Sir Ken Robinson, that would say that our, our educational system, like we're going into a, a future that we, it's impossible to predict what the future is going to be. And we're still putting so much emphasis on you know, testing and reading and, and writing and arithmetic and not on, you know, we call them soft skills. I would be among the people that would say, these aren't soft skills, you know, social and emotional intelligence, learning how to work together. Look at, that's what we need. You know, we, if we can't work together and we can't function and we, we're just constantly in conflict. So to me, we need a school model that helps this, that helps children learn these skills. And to me, the only way to do it is if the school is in really close partnership with the parents and there's buy-in with the parents. And in a sense, you're, you're shaping the culture of families. So, um, so to me, part of that humility and part of learning, um, to listen to one another and learning the importance of listening to one another and empathy is something that the best way to do it, like everything else in life is to actually do it. And so you create conditions where it's done, you know, you sit in circles and you discuss and people get comfortable with with uh, people who might not be so comfortable with uh, with their, having a public voice, they they learn to get more comfortable with it so that they can express themselves. People who are comfortable with dominating, 
um, with their public voice, become more aware of that and uh, become less dominant. And so to me, all these things need to be modeled and taught and it's and school is the way society is organized um, and coordinated around. So why not do it at school? So that's that's part of what our conviction is about going um, going granular because our experience was over the years, you know, and you're familiar with the, the circles of change and the reflection circles and six month training. And we're just all too familiar with with things that have, I think, lots of trainings that can have a superficial impact that, you know, people learn how to do that method. They put their hat on, their method hat on, they go into a situation, they do that method. But the underlying principles, the the values that that method is baked in, aren't actually learned. And so when they get into a situation where they're not actually sitting down to do that method, they just act as they always have, as 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 their culture dictates, um, and the way that they use their power, and the way that they use their voice, the way that they their prejudices, their biases, you know. So to me, those are the things yeah, that uh, yeah. that I, I'm invested it's, in. It's so interesting that you you say that because when I first sort of became friends with Greg Epstein, uh, who was the humanist chaplain at Harvard, um, I went out to visit him when I was trying to figure out what community looked like for people who were pursuing loving kindness in a secular way, hmm. and uh, and he had just he had just sort of got involved with a grant from some foundation that wanted him to oversee kind of the, the, the launching of humanist communities in, you know, or, or, or sort of the amalgamating, you know, sort of create a, like 40 or 50 humanist communities across the country that would be doing this stuff. And so, you know, we were talking about, you know, models and ways of doing it and training methods and, you know, conferences and stuff like that. And it slowly dawned on me, gosh, I've been here before. Right. Right. And, and it never feels like it comes to anything. Right. And I ended up sort of saying to him, you know, I, cause he was sort of like, you know, a lot about this stuff from your church background. Like you could be such a good trainer and you could travel around. And it wasn't just him. It was lots of people that were like, you could travel around and you could, you know, help people start these communities in lots of different places. And you could have like this national effort, national. And I remember thinking, I, I've never done it successfully in one place. Uh-huh. Right. I think I know how to do it, but I don't know. And yeah. so when I moved here to, when I moved back to Cincinnati and, and started doing it, what I found was, gosh, like it does work, uh-huh, but it's right. way harder than I thought. <laughs> exactly right. It's really Amen. hard. Amen. It's On so the one hard. hand, which, you know, talking about developing some humility, like I was saying to people, well, you know, you just get a group of people, it's hard. Right. Um, but more importantly, what I found was, is that now, both at USC, where I worked with about five students who were the leaders of the secular community there, and, uh, and they were they ran the big group. I just right. worked, I just met with them right. and we planned out the meetings over years, two or three years. 
And I talk to those kids now and it feels like I'm talking not in a negative way and not like, believe me, they're their own people. But when we talk about community, I feel like I'm talking to a version of myself. Hmm. They get it. Uh-huh, like, right. Like whatever that model, whatever that vision was. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of one meeting where I taught it or one, you know, one conversation where I tried to outline it. They, they just, we did it together for years. Right. Right. And, the, and, and, and they in, imbibed it. They, they, it became part of their, their identity. And now they're all in other places doing other things. But I feel like that's the only way a model ever really gets transferred is, is not like, here's the guidebook, but rather here's a person who lived it with, who lived within it. And so I think like that granular, let's just do one thing and do it well. Right. And maybe one of our teachers will move to another town. Exactly. And she'll know how to do it too. Right. That's not because we taught her. Not because because she, right. It's yeah, a, she it, was in it. Yeah. It's like it becomes part of your DNA. So when, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, when this happens, you know, this is the way we approach it. You know, when, when this happens, because stuff just will always happen. It's life and it's human beings. And there's, you know, when, when, okay, when somebody sabotages a coworker, so what do we do? When a neighbor sabotages another neighbor, what do we do? And, you know, so it's just, yeah. Um, yeah. So, but, so I, yeah, I, th- yeah. I think if you think about this idea of humility and how do we communicate it, you were like, well, you know, we wanted to have this humble approach to education and to community organizing. And, and, and basically, so yeah, we better go, you know, and it sounds like this was Merlene's push. Like, we, we need to stop talking in abstract terms or, you know, or doing trainings on this. And we just need to pick one place and do it. Exactly. In our community. You know, that's what she says. Yeah. Look, we're, we, we have educational issues right here in our community. We know these people. We know this. Let's just focus. Let's just yeah. focus and, and do something that, um, you know, can have a lasting and replicable. It, it, it will, you know, it will inspire others. We don't have to think about scaling. I, you know, I'm, I'm among the, the, uh, those that are feel that sometimes that that there's too much emphasis on always thinking about scaling um like in the in the nonprofit world in the social change world there's just so much emphasis on scaling or at least to to think about scaling in the traditional way yeah traditional way franchise yeah exactly that that's and my my sister and she did her phd her research in Haiti and our most of the focus was in uh, was in our community at the Children's Academy um, but she would say well you know a lot of times people think about scaling automatically as replication but she would say uh, you know the way that she sees it is that there's three ways to scale one is replication and that's the most a lot of times the most commonly uh, referred to one but then there's also going deep and impacting culture. And so that's what we feel like. If you create a model, then people, like what you're talking about, like the, your, those students, 
um, they wherever they go, it's going to spread. And other people who, in, in the case of a school, we have regular visitors that are coming. And there may be aspects of it that that they're not necessarily going to be able to go do. Like maybe we have more resources. So the reality is they can't build an earthquake resistance school, unfortunately. They just don't have the resources. But they can learn to sit in a circle and have humility and ask questions and listen well. You know, uh, things like that is is what our what our feeling yeah. is. Oh, and then the other way to scale, like she would talk about, is is advocacy. You know, you change policy, and it impacts you know huge amounts of people. Well, you know, I I think that that maybe is a good place to turn it back to you know, this moment, this covid moment and our sense of uncertainty and our not knowing what to do. Um, because I, I think that a lot of us are, you know, a lot of people are posting things and they're, they're sort of like thinking that somehow they're going to affect the national dialogue. And I, I, I think maybe it, it might make more sense for some of us to say, gosh, I probably ought to think about finding somebody. If if I don't like this national dialogue, I got to find somebody on the other side of it, but who's gentle or, or who's mm-hmm. open, or, or you know, like like. And I may have to go through a few people before I find somebody that I can talk to. Right. And then and then and then at a granular level, try to build that conversation, mm-hmm. and maybe then the two of those people could invite some other people into the conversation, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> create a little circle in their backyard right. um, and not talking about rest of X or, or talking about violence against women necessarily, but maybe talking about, you know, the issues of the day in the United States, what we're doing about masks or, or how do we deal with the economic uncertainty or, or what about the race stuff or, or this, or this me too stuff. But, but in a sense, to not think like, how do we franchise this? Right. But rather think, what would it look like in our own community with a handful of people that we do know to create a better conversation? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think a lot of the people that I know, we feel helpless because we're trying to figure out how to change the national conversation. Right. And what I hear you saying is, is like, find somebody that can help you gain understanding and then, and then try to try to develop that yeah on on a very granular level in your own backyard yeah yeah amen amen you know um you know i think i've written to you no i totally resonate with what with, with what you're saying and with you know what you're um kind of concluding about what i feel like i'm trying to say margaret wheatley and she oh, you, wrote, you sent me something you said you need to listen to margaret wheatley Yes, exactly. So she, I read her book, um, Leadership in the New Science, like 25 years ago. That was her, probably her most uh, popular book. And I loved it. It was, it was really looking at both science and chaos theory. And, and in a sense, it came out of, you know, like these whole system approaches, like open space technology and appreciative inquiry and all these different whole systems approaches that are are about getting people into conversations and dialogue and how leaders 
can become inviting and you know rather than the more traditional dominant um, presence. But she's so articulate, and she's um, you know as a consultant to world leaders, and so her book. She had a book that came out a couple years ago. Who do we choose to be? So it was recommended to me, and I I got it, and I and I it was it's quite sobering. She's basically takes the the theories of a number of people that have studied civilizations and who have agreed together that there's indicators, you know, when civilization is declining. And when you take into consideration today because of climate change and the situation of the planet, you know, we're, we're not only dealing with civilizations that are by, you know, m- most indicators that they're in decline, but we're looking at the planet. And she comes up with, and she's not, she's a Buddhist. So it's, she doesn't put emphasis on hope. And she's works with people and, and activists and people that are leaders and trying to create change that, that are burning out. And, you know, basically she comes up with this theory that uh, what we have to embrace is that as human beings, we can create islands of sanity. Like there, there are going to be trends that we may not be able to control. And we might not be able to come up with things that are going to scale and are going to change the course of civilizations. But as human beings, we have this capacity to create islands of sanity in our relationships with our families, with our neighbors, in our organizations. And an island of sanity is where we truly are being human, human beings and manifesting generosity and compassion and kindness and love. This is what we can do. And this is what we have to devote our lives to. So to me, it's a very, very powerful message and it's a fabulous book, but just in a sense, it helps. It's helped me to discover that, uh, you know, this uncertainty is going to play on my psyche. It's going to play on my, try to play on my behavior. And there's things that I can't control, but there's things that I can control. Islands of sanity. Islands of I sanity. Love that. Yes, yeah. so do I. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's, I, I, I mean, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there are people out there that are called to be Churchill, called right. to be Gandhi. Yeah. Call, call, you know, called to be Bader Ginsburg's, um, and, 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 and play out their, their commitments on that level. But I think that those people are not going to get very far unless they are receiving support and encouragement and ideas and grassroots connection from a lot of islands of sanity. Um, I don't think you can build a structure of sanity unless there are a bunch of islands of sanity upon which to to build it. And, and that seems to be the work of most of us. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, this is good. This is good, John. I mean, I, I've kept you way too long, but, um, but this is good because our conversation started out with us sort of scratching around trying to figure out like, do we know anything? Do we have anything? Yeah. And, 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 and then, you know, you, you kind of, you really helped me 
to 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 by by talking about both finding that person who 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 helps you to come to understanding and and who 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 you're able to take it from and then on the other hand you know this idea of getting granular because and and building some islands of sanity and i i think for the people that i know that are trying to figure out how to be more human in in an uncertain world i, I think this I think I think there's there's real there's real gold here. Hmm. Hey, thanks, brother. Hey, thank you. It's great to catch up. I want to say thank you so much for sticking with us in this conversation. Thank you so much for being part of this community. I I genuinely love the people who engage with this podcast and that allow the people that I'm talking to and that are changing my life to change their lives too. I think we're doing something that's valuable. And I'm, I'm just, I'm proud to be a part of it. And so uh, I'll see you next time on Humanize Me. That's what's going to be at the end of the podcast. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at Humanize Me Pod on Twitter and Humanize Me Podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. You could be larger than life, bigger than the world, living out the hopes and dreams of every boy and every girl. You could fly higher than the sky, shine brighter than the stars. You can have all you ever wanted. You could